Let's begin with a word of prayer. In Psalm 115, we read, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name give glory, because of thy loving kindness, because of thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, we desire to be truth seekers. We desire that your spirit will bring truth to our hearts and make it real to us and that we would then in turn reflect that truth in the daily walk that we express and through the words which we speak and in every contact that you give to us that we would shine with the truth of Christ to those around us. I thank you, Lord, for everyone in this room this hour and pray your blessing upon each one. For those that are not able to be here this morning, uh, they're over at the celebration weekend or maybe ill or whatever may be the case, I pray that your hand will be upon each of those also. And I ask that as, you, as we study your word today, that you will illuminate our hearts and minds and that you will bless uh, in the other Sunday school classes that are occurring at this hour and in the service, which is concurrent. And Father, wherever your name is being proclaimed throughout the city of Reading today, this country and, and around the world, that you would make your word, as the scripture tells us, quick, sharp, penetrating to the very core of those who hear your word this day. We thank you for your presence with us this hour in Christ's name. Amen. You'll turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Joshua. I'd like to read the first seven verses. Now it came about when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priests' feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. And each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you will say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. This, of course, was the command of the Lord that these stones be picked up and that these stones be placed as a memorial. And so in obedience, this is what you discover concerning both Moses and now Joshua. They were men of obedience. And so in accordance to God's word, Joshua ordered a strong man from each tribe to go out into the river and pick up a stone, a significant sized stone, not a pebble, not a cobble, a boulder, and to put it on his shoulders and, and to carry it out and ultimately to the camp. Now, a little bit later, we'll, maybe not today, but at least by next week, we'll be looking at how far away the camp was. So I kind of think maybe there was a little sharing as it went along here because they had to walk probably three, four miles. I don't know how far you want to walk with a big boulder on your shoulders, but anyway, this, this was commanded and this was done. And these stones were to be carried to the first campsite in Canaan. And there they were to be set up as a memorial, a monument. A monument that the scripture tells us here was to be used to remind future generations of the great miracle that the Lord had performed this day 
for Israel. Now, does this matter to us at all? There are those, I think, today who would feel that that's fine for the ancient Hebrews. They needed to do that. But you know, we have the whole Bible. We have the New Testament. We don't need any monuments around. We, we don't need to, to, to remind ourselves of the past. In fact, didn't Paul say in Philippians 3, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize, the upward call of Christ Jesus. What did Paul mean by that? I think there are those, maybe not consciously, but unconsciously, take a saying like that or a, a teaching like that from the scripture and use it as an excuse for not being interested for one thing in the Old Testament. Now this should probably doesn't apply to you since you are here, but there are many people who, who don't seem to have any use for the Old Testament. It's kind of like, well, that's for the old people, the Hebrews of the past, but we don't need it today. We just need the New Testament. That's all that we need. Or as an excuse for having no knowledge of the, of the history of the church and not caring or even of their own denomination. You know, what is the story of our denomination? There are many who, who don't give a, r a rip about what happened yesterday, spiritually speaking, or in terms of the history of what God has done. But I think if we read this passage in Philippians, and we won't take time to do that, but if we read it clearly, we discover from the first verses of that passage that Paul's not referring to what God had done. Paul is referring to what he, Paul, had done, forgetting what he had done. He, he says, I'm forgetting the fact that I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee. He's saying that doesn't make a hill of beans a difference. He's even saying that he's forgetting the fact that he suffered the loss of all things for Christ. So what, he's saying? It doesn't matter. That does not give me brownie points before God now. I must press on. I must forget these things in the past relative to who I am and what I have done. Paul's not going to revel or take glory in the fact that this had been the case before or he had done these things. As you read through the Bible, I think one of the things we discover in both the Old and the New Testament is that the Bible's a history book. Above all else, it's a history book. And it starts with Genesis and it goes to Revelation and it gives us the story of humanity. And even the New Testament is such, particularly if you look at the combination of the Gospel of Luke and, and the uh, book of Acts, which apparently all was written by, by Luke, and you trace it all the way through and it starts at about 7 BC or whenever Christ was born and goes all the way to about the year 60, and it gives us a history of the early church, its formation and establishment and the missionaries who went out to spread the gospel. I think what this tells us is that God expects us to frequently remind ourselves of what he has done. Why? So that we might live faithfully before him. Let me read a verse from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. You don't need to try to turn to it. It simply says this. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, Considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. We have the story of Moses in Scripture. We have the story of Joshua in Scripture and the story of all the other men and women of faith so that we might imitate their faith and, of course, avoid their failings. I mean, God tells the whole thing, wrinkles and all, about all of these individuals so that we might learn to imitate their faith and to not imitate where they fell and where they disobeyed the Lord. Let's go on with verse 8. We, we studied this passage in part last time, so let's move on to verse 8 of Joshua 4. Thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded, 
and took up the twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who had carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. And they are there to this day. For the priests who carried the Ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed. And it came about when all the people had finished crossing that the Ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 equipped for war crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. I think these 12 men were not only obedient in picking up the stones, but I think at least at first they were enthusiastic about it. Maybe after a couple of miles of carrying it, their enthusiasm waned a little. But I think with enthusiasm, they went out there and it could have been that some of them looked around and said, I'm going to pick up a bigger stone than he picked up. You know, I don't know. Always this little competition that seems to go along. Uh, anyway, to take these stones, to carry them to establish a memorial. What we're told in this passage is, in addition, Moses, that is Joshua, ordered or set up himself, the scripture isn't quite clear, but it's, at least he ordered the construction of another memorial right out in the middle of the Jordan River where the priests were standing, right next to him, another pile of stones to be erected out there, 12 stones put in a little pyramidal pile probably, uh, right out there in the middle of the Jordan River. Now think about that for a minute. These would have to be fairly sizable stones. And since, of course, they weren't going to be carried four miles or three miles, they could be bigger stones. They could be rolled into place and kind of rolled on top of each other to make this, this pile here. Now, I would think that's probably more the case because this pile was going to stand in the middle of the Jordan River, which meant it was going to have to withstand the floodwaters as they came back and as the river flowed again. They were going to have to be large enough so that they would be visible outside of the water, most of the year at least. And so it had to be, I think, a very large, a pile of very large stones. And a pile that certainly would be visible, if not in the highest time of water, most of the year when the river wasn't running at flood level. Now, it's possible that where the uh, men were standing with the ark, that that was kind of a high point in the river. You, you've probably all seen riverbeds, and they're not always nice little dips like this. You know, sometimes they have an irregular bottom, and it could be that they were standing on a high point where once this pile was put up there, even in the floodwaters, the tip might stick out. We, we don't know. Uh, certainly, they didn't put it down in a deep spot uh, there. And uh, so this was a memorial that would survive, and the scripture tells, it, tells us that it does survive because if you look at, at uh, the end of verse 9, it says, and they are there to this day. Now, this day was approximately 10 years later, about, when uh, Joshua wrote down all of these events which transpired, because the book of Joshua takes us all the way through uh, the events of the conquest, and so it, it might even have been later than that. But sometime 10, 20 years in the future, uh, this is being penned, and the author is saying, and that pile is still there and still be seen there in the middle of the Jordan River. 
the end of verse 10, we're told that the people hurried and crossed. Why did the people hurry to cross? What's the hurry? Uh, well, some might say, well, they want to make sure they get across before the water comes back. Well, I don't think that was a, a concern to them. I think they knew that if God could stop the river and dry out the bed, that he wasn't going to send the water back before they were across. I, I think they hurried and crossed for other reasons. I think one of the reasons, which seems most likely, is the excitement about finally entering the promised land. I mean, here it was for 40 years they had been promised this land. And now they were but a river's width away. I don't think they're going to just drag their heels and, you know, sit down and have a picnic on the wrong side of the Jordan and just say, oh, we'll get across. I think they're going to hurry across. You know, why would you drag your heels when you're within a few yards of achieving a promise that you've been waiting for for 40 years? I realize not everybody's the same way. I mean, some people, you hand them a present and they'll just rip it open in front of your eyes. You know, others they say thank you very much and take it home and privately unwrap it. Everybody's different. But I think most of them hurried because they were excited. We're getting there. We're finally entering Canaan. Secondly, I think they hurried out of respect to those that had yet to cross behind them. You know, we have to remember, we're talking about a sizable number of people here. Uh, even though I think they crossed in a broad front, they didn't cross single file or family after family. I think they crossed in a broad front. That's why God dried up 20-some miles of the river. But nevertheless, we're talking about possibly as many as two and a half million with all of their animals, sheep and goats and cattle and all of their gear. They have to get this stuff all across the river bed. So it took a while. So I think they didn't linger and they moved right along so that everybody could get across because their goal was to get everybody across in a single day. And then thirdly, I think they hurried because they saw those priests standing out there holding this ark. Now, how long are they going to stand out there and hold this ark? Uh, in the middle of the river. The ark may not have been all that heavy, even though it did have a couple of stone tablets in it and, and some other things. But, I don't know about you, but if I stand for hours and hours in the same spot not moving, it gets a little weary. I don't think I've even tried that for that long anyway. And so I think out of respect for the priests, they, they wanted to get across because the priests had to remain in the middle of the river until the entire nation was across. We'll see why that's true as we move along in the passage here. Once, now, what's interesting about Scripture, and I think you've noticed this in many passages before, the Scripture sometimes goes ahead and then comes back again. Uh, like in this passage, it'll tell you that then the ark went across ahead of the people and led the way. But, you know, really in the passage, it hasn't done that yet. He, Joshua is saying, and that's what's going to happen now. The ark will then go back and be in front of the whole nation again and lead the people in the way. But the actual description of of Joshua ordering them out of the river hasn't happened yet. So, you know, the scripture tends to go ahead, then come back, and go ahead, and then come back. We need to recognize that. People who like to take the scripture so literally that the actual order of the words has to be somehow worked out historically uh, need to come to an understanding that uh, scripture is not necessarily organized in our Western Greco-Roman sense of how order ought to be. In verses 12 and 13, the author points out obedience. He points out that the tribes that had been allowed to settle in Transjordan on the basis of their promise that they would help their brothers conquer Canaan are now carrying out their promise. 
They are part of the group moving across. Now their families are remaining in Transjordan, up in the highlands of Gilead, scattered through the towns and villages and, and farmsteads. Their wives, their children, their older folks, they're all there. But the warriors, 40,000 of them were told, are moving across with Israel and probably on the cutting edge, right out front. They were unencumbered. They didn't have their families with them. They didn't have their gear with them except their battle gear. Uh, they didn't have herds to push across the riverbed because all of their animals were safely ensconced up there in the plateau of Gilead. And so here they are coming across, and the scripture says, in obedience to their promise to Moses and to Joshua, they are moving across to carry out the fighting that's going to occur over the next seven years in the conquest of the land. In verse 14, we read something very, I think, very fascinating. It says, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, so that they revered him or feared him, just as they had revered or feared Moses all the days of his life. God had already promised this to Joshua. He had said, I will make it so that they view you as they viewed Moses. Now the people were standing in utter awe at what God had just done. He had instantaneously stopped the flow of the river, piled it up 15 miles north at, at Adam, or wherever Adam was, and allowed them to go, and dried the riverbed, just whoosh, dried the riverbed, so that they could come, go across the Jordan Riverbed at flood season. And so God uses this, this condition where the people are just, whoa, you know, they're awestruck, as a time in which to exalt Joshua before his people. Joshua was a man of faith and obedience. In effect, he was another Moses. And in this, he was a great example to us. Matthew 23, 12 states this, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. But whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. I'd like to read from 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. I mean, if that doesn't apply to Joshua, I, you know, I don't know what passage could be more applicable to Joshua. He will exalt you at the proper time. Therefore, you can cast your cares upon him <coughs> because he cares for you. I mean, Joshua had the cares of two million people on his shoulders. I mean, you know, we, we think today, we say, well, so-and-so is the mayor of a city of two million people. has got the cares of the people. No, I don't think so. Not like Joshua. Because Joshua's concern is not only with the physical needs of his people, but with their spiritual needs. Seeing to it that they learn to live lives of obedience, that they exalt the God of Israel, as well as seeing that their physical needs are met. The spiritual welfare of people is much more straining on those who supervise that than the physical welfare of people is. You, you may have noticed this, that just the act of prayer is hard work. The act of prayer is hard work. Sometimes you feel like when you come to the end of your prayer, almost like, whew, you know, I'm glad I'm done. 
Well, in the sense that it's hard work. Because when you're, when you're praying, you're, you're, you're in battle. It's unseen, but you're in battle. I think there's a powerful lesson here for us. Because as you look through the 40 years of the Exodus, how many people did God exalt before Israel? Lots? No, not lots. God exalted Moses, and God exalted Aaron and Miriam, and God exalted Joshua. And that's it. One of the reasons he didn't is because if we're part of the human race, we have a real big problem, and that's the problem of self-exaltation. Now, it may not be as obvious with some as it is with others, but it is a problem that we all face. Let me read a verse to you from Romans chapter 3. I'm sorry, Romans 12, verse 3. It simply says this, For through the grace given to me, I say to every person among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have a sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And learning what ought is, is important. You know, that what ought is. There are times when people transfer the glory of the office to themselves. And they see that themselves as worthy of the office that God has given to them. And that is tragic. Let me read further in Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, reading in verse, the first three verses. Brethren, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he, dece he deceives himself. The passage is a very strong warning about the fact that we are all susceptible to the trespasses that others have fallen to. And our job is to restore in a spirit of gentleness, not in a spirit of arrogance. Huh, how could you do that? How despicable. Let me somehow bring you back into the way you ought to go. I mean, with that kind of attitude, God isn't going to be able to use you whatsoever or me whatsoever. Um, we need to face the help, helping of other persons as if we too could have been where they are at that moment. Because it is by the grace of God that we stand when we stand. It is by our weakness when we fail. fail. And if anyone thinks himself something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And there are a lot of deceived people in the world. And sometimes I think we're probably guilty of deceiving ourselves about things of this matter. Self-exaltation became a problem even for men and women as godly as Moses and Aaron and Miriam and Joshua. You may remember that each one of them came to a place where they exalted themselves and God had to humble them. We remember, of course, how Moses did that. He stood there on the rock and said, Must I bring water out of this rock for you? And then water gushed forth from the rock. And God spoke to him and said, You have not exalted me in the eyes of these people. Therefore, you are not entering the, the promised land. 
Moses as great as Moses was and such a powerful example of faith that he was, was a man who could be tempted to self-exaltation as happened at the rock at Kadesh Barnea. And of course we know and, and we studied as we looked at the life of Moses concerning Aaron and Miriam. There came a day when they said, Moses, how come you're taking all the credit for this? We should be up there with you. Should be a trinity of people here ruling over this people. Why should you be exalted to the high point of all Israel? And God said, who are you to gainsay whom I have chosen to lead my people? And of course Miriam was struck by leprosy. God healed her. But great was the fall of these two. And then Joshua, we haven't come yet to his failings, but we will soon, as he had completed the conquest of uh, Jericho and, and Ai, and, and then these people come to him dressed as if they had come a thousand miles, and rather than seek the Lord, he just assumed upon himself that he had the mind of the Lord and said, sure, let's make a treaty with these people. It's no big deal, and they're the next city that was supposed to be conquered. So Joshua himself was a man who arrogated himself to God's position and as a result paid the price of disobedience. Church history is littered with tragedies such as these on great and small scale. Men and women who couldn't handle the exalted positions of leadership that they were given. They forgot that as Paul said, quoting... <laughs> pagans, it is in him that we all live and move and have our being. We stand as brothers and sisters co-equal before God, none exalted before the other in the eyes of God. And we need to always remember that. Jesus had some words to say about this in John chapter 15, reading verses 4 to 6. John chapter 15. This, of course, is his vine story. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. Most of us are familiar, of course, with the creation and the existence of an office called the papacy. Unfortunately, if you study the history of the papacy, you'll see the lives of scores of men who were exalted beyond their ability to take it. And as a result, great was their fall. Unfortunately, it has even touched the evangelical church, as you and I well know, in the last 10, 20, 30 years, well, throughout the history of the church, but we've seen it in, in great ways where the people have been exalted beyond their capacity to hand above that which they ought to have been, obviously. And great was their fall, and, and tragic was the result. And tarnished is the name of the Lord. It's just like Lois was reading in the paper yesterday or so where... People are holding up signs up in Montana. Was it Montana where those, that gay fellow was killed? Colorado, wherever it was. Wyoming. Wyoming. <laughs> holding up signs saying, God hates faggots. Fags? Whatever the word was. It was a derogatory term, obviously. But I mean, that besmirches the name of God. 
you know, it's no wonder that the nation is turning more and more to, to view Christians as some kind of extreme rightist or you know, whatever terminology you want to use, but extremists. Well, we are extreme in the sense that we believe that all hope is in Jesus Christ and there is no hope in any other way, but hopefully we're not extremists who breathe forth hate because Jesus preached love. Not a kind of a love that tolerates all things and makes no difference, but a love of the person and the fact that all can be transformed. You know, I, to me, it's, it's a horrible sense of pride to think that you have some kind of idea of, of what God is saying in this situation. You're willing to broadcast it in spite of the fact it flies directly in the face of who Jesus is and what the Scripture teaches. It's horrible pride. It's demonic. Satan gets more kicks out of perverting Christians to doing, well, whether they're Christians or not, but people who claim to be Christians, into doing things that are obviously vile and saying things of such nature than he does out of making drunks stumbling in the streets out of people. Well, let's read the next passage here in, in chapter 4, beginning at verse 15. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded, and the priests came up, or saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came about, when the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up to the dry ground, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and went over all its banks as before. All the people are across. All the people are now in Canaan. And God told Joshua to inform the priests it was time to come up out of the river now. Carry that ark right on out of there. And the amazing thing is that as soon as the last priest, you know, concerning, probably there were four, one on each end of each pole, carrying the ark between them. As soon as the last one came out and put his feet outside of the flood area of the river, we're told that the water filled the river to the same level it had been before the miracle happened. Now, there's no mention here of a great wall of water. You know, as if God said, okay, lift my hand now, whoosh, <laughs> wipe out the whole Jordan Valley <laughs> in the process, you know. No. The picture is one of a gentle returning to flow. But the picture is also one that seems to indicate that it happened calmly, peacefully, and instantaneously. It's not like they looked and there's a little trickle running down the middle of the Jordan and then the trickle got a little bigger and the trickle got a little bigger and the trickle got a little bigger until it finally got back up there. It's as if the water went as soon as I was priest without. It was almost like they barely got their foot out and there was water where their foot feet had been. Now, that is going to be very difficult to explain by natural phenomena. Well, there was this river a bank that was collapsed by an earthquake and it blocked the river and now the river was going over the top and cutting down into this so it was starting to flow back. I don't think so. This thing was done miraculously. The Israelites cannot be viewed as such country bumpkins that they couldn't figure out a natural phenomenon. Uh, I, I think we have to view this as a mighty miracle. Uh, the timing was miraculous if nothing else. You know. That, that whole, if, if it were a dirt dam, that whole dam had to, to start to give way so that the water would get there just in time for the priest to get his foot out. I, I think it's important for us to view these things as miracles, 
whether or not they have scientific explanations is irrelevant. This, this whole concept that's been prevalent ever since the Enlightenment, the time that this country was formed as a nation, that everything in the Bible has got to have a natural explanation because we don't want any miracles, because God doesn't do those things. <laughs> you know, I don't do that. You know. uh, we can say that, but uh, God does that, and the Scripture is full of miracles. It's a miraculous book. And the physical miracles simply are a small indication of the great miracle of the salvation of a fallen human race. I think the Israelites stood in awe as they saw the river back. We just were there. We just went across a totally dry bed and now here's that river all back again. You know, tumbling by, turbulent, right up to flood level. For 40 years, they had wandered in a wilderness, seeing very little water. Here's an awesome thing for them. See this? What's interesting is 40 years before, when they stood on the west bank of the Red Sea, and God opened the Red Sea, and they went across to the east side, and then as the army pursued, the, the great walls of water collapsed in on the army and destroyed the Egyptian army. What happened then, of course, was they were sealed off from Egypt sealed off from Egypt. The army was destroyed and any other pursuit had a big problem. They had the whole Red Sea between them and the Israelites now. So the Israelites could sit down and go, Whew, you know, we're on the other side, we're safe and secure now, and Moses would, would uh, compose a poem, uh, which a song which would be sung about it all. But you know, the story's a little different here. Now when the Jordan River comes back into their bank, they're sealed into Canaan, <laughs> not out of Canaan. Uh, suddenly they have to think, um, I think we're committed to the task now. <laughs> we're in Canaan, the river's back, there's no going back the way we've, quote, burned our bridges, as it were. We're in Canaan, and it's, it's go forward now or else. And we can't sit over in Moab and think for a little while, no, not today, maybe tomorrow, or maybe the next week, but when we get all ready, we'll go across. No, they're there. They're committed. They've crossed the Rubicon, as it were. I think, however, that most of the people were happy that they were there. Because as I mentioned last week, as they crossed that Jordan River and walked into Canaan and, and, and they'd seen God miraculously stop the river, I think they felt invincible. I don't think there was a lot of fear in the hearts of many, especially when they saw 40,000 Reubenites, Gadites, and Manassites out there with battle gear ready to go. Well, let's finish the chapter here. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month, encamped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you, until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Base camp for the invasion. Where is this base camp? It's at Gilgal. Where is Gilgal? Well, that's the $24 question, or 64 whatever. It's supposed to be. 
Um, the exact site of Gilgal is not known. But we do know that the site was between the Jordan and Jericho. And most of those who have studied this put it closer to Jericho than to the Jordan. Now what's interesting is the name Gilgal means the circle. So there are several Gilgals in Hebrew history. And so the question is, was there any place there before or any significant thing there before? Or was it made Gilgal simply because that's where they camped and they put the memorial stones in a circle? Well, that's very possible. It's possible they created a little circle, circular pile with those 12 stones. Scripture doesn't tell us what the form of the pile was, of the, of the memorial pile. But it's believed that the camp was probably no more than two or three miles from the walls of Jericho, which meant they could see the walls from the camp. And what was more significant was the people of Jericho could see Israel. Now, as we go to the next chapter, we won't do that today, but as we go to the next chapter, uh, when, they, when the people of Canaan hear of the miracle, it tells, <laughs> tells us that their heart melted within them. And I'm sure their hearts weren't any strengthened by the fact that there were two and a half million people camped two miles away uh, from the walls. I mean, Jericho wasn't this mag monstrous city, you know, with 500,000 troops on the walls. It was a relatively small town, just a few acres in size. And so to them, you know, they probably could have thought all these Israelites have to do is stand on each other's shoulders and they'll be able to get into this city. Well, not quite. They did have pretty strong walls. But, you know, all kinds of fears would go through the minds of somebody who has seen miracle after miracle happen on behalf of their enemy and then see the enemy is real. I mean, it's one thing to hear about Israel crossing the Red Sea 40 years ago. It's another thing for them to have crossed yesterday uh, the river right over there and then to see them in real flesh and blood right outside your walls. The campsite was identified, the stones were set up as a memorial, and the scripture makes it very clear why this memorial was set up, that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. He does these mighty things for the strengthening of our faith. Our faith is not an existential shot in the dark or leap into the Avoid. It's based on the solid rock of what God has proven himself to be through thousands of years of human history. And that's why we have this book. Well, we'll look at the fifth chapter next week.